This project was produced by Planet FM with support from New Zealand On Air. The series features 15 candid conversations with people from migrant and former refugee backgrounds, sharing their stories, their lived experience, their own perspectives and covering some sensitive topics. I'm Melina from Storio, and you're listening to Pass the Mic. Due to the global pandemic, we've recorded these conversations from the comfort of our homes. This is episode five. In this episode, I'm talking to Sun Min Park from South Korea. Hi, Sun. I'm very excited to have you. Just kind of wanted to, you know, let's just jump into it. Like the first question that I always ask is tell us a little bit about your journey or your story. Like where you come from? How did you grow up? Yeah, I come from South Korea, I suppose. I came to, I moved to New Zealand with my mom and younger brother in 2003. And um, we moved here as soon as my mom signed the divorce um, paper, <laughs> because there's a stigma in Korea. Although the divorce rate is really high in Korea at the moment, well, 20 years ago there were there was still stigma around um, divorces children. <laughs> If you do anything slightly wrong, people will blame it on your parents divorcing or it's because you're a divorced child and so on. So that was one of the reasons why we moved here. When I moved here, it was just um, really liberating. My church friend would be like um, bringing their stepsister like it's just normal. (laughs) It was a culture shock for me when I got to know a lot of my friends in church or school have like stepdad, stepmom, and like stepchildren, uh, step um, siblings, step sisters and brothers. So it was really liberating moving here. I came here when I was 15, 16 years old. And when you enter high school in Korea, you study from 7 a.m. to like um, 11 p.m. or midnight. <laughs> so I just escaped that kind of um, lifestyle by coming here. Korean, one of the Korean dramas that was really popular called Sky Castle. It's ridiculous. The content is ridiculous, but it unfortunately does reflect um, some um, reality quite well. <laughs> when I was in college, which is high school here, um, you finish school at three o'clock after like five periods or something. And um, <laughs> I go play at the playground at three o'clock and go home and watch SpongeBob. <laughs> that was my high school days. <laughs> you know what was your mom like you said you came here with mom and she wanted to leave was that a common thing that people could like you know i'm just thinking in kazakhstan it's not really easy to leave the country and i know obviously like in new zealand we have a lot of migrants from china from india from korea from like a, you know a whole bunch of asian countries but what was that like i don't really know much about korean immigration both my parents worked uh all the time like Korean working hours are crazy like you go to work at like 7 a.m and finish at 10 p.m it's kind of norm I, I know it's it, it's been improving and changing over time and but my mom currently lives in Korea and she still does that kind of work hours she was here but she moved back because she got bullied and <laughs> at her workplace here in New Zealand working at a factory and um, couldn't pick up English uh, very well because she was doing two jobs had no time to really yeah get to know the culture language and people here and she just got <laughs> really sick and 
the weather, winter weather here really um, didn't suit her, like, so Teresa, she got really unwell in it. We we also lived in a damp housing and all this sort of <laughs> crazy mixture. Yeah, she moved back and um, and healthcare here, the doctors were just keep giving her paracetamol and ibuprofen, the painkillers. But she went on flight. She borrowed money from her friend back in Korea um to buy the flight ticket to go to Korea. And as soon as she landed in Korea, they put her into emergency, <laughs> and the conditions got really worse because it, it was untreated by the healthcare system here yeah she just cannot live here right <laughs> she's dismissed by her colleagues she was bullied um she was dismissed by her uh, you know healthcare system here yeah i lost track of what i was saying this could be adhd but what was your question <laughs> have you been back to korea at all since you've or since your mom left or since you you've come here yeah so i was um i suppose studying and working for about 10 years either at some point of the, the, those time, um, studying full-time and working full-time. <laughs> but usually studying full-time and working part-time or vice versa, working full-time and studying part-time. So I couldn't really afford, but however, I did make it to Korea a few times to see my mother. The last time I saw my mother was about five years ago. <laughs> yeah. What has been your experience like in New Zealand? Like, Is this something that you've ever considered moving back to Korea? Or, you know, are you happier here? I'm having a good time and I have a good time here in New Zealand. But I, I, I suppose there are different challenges um, being in Korea and being in Aotearoa. Obviously, being in New Zealand, um, being a well, Asian female uh, with a bit of an accent, um, I'm not like a um, big build. I'm not small, but I'm not big. I'm kind of slim figure in um I'm thirty close to thirty-five, but people think I'm usually ten years younger than I am, I think. Well they well however they don't check my ID anymore when I go to liquor shops. I don't know what the, but all of these things um can become a barrier as you as everybody probably is aware. It is a struggle on a daily basis. People will think that um um you're incapable of doing something that I am totally capable of. That just, that just happens every corner. I have to kind of prove myself uh, constantly, but um, sometimes I just uh, let it go and give up because you can't, You need to pick, up, pick a bottle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and Sun, kind of as we're talking about this, what was your experience like at, you said you, you, said you did three postgraduate degrees? Could you tell, could you tell me more about it? I was at the university for 10 years because I was, there was about four years gap between high school and university. While I was um, getting my residency, I was just doing all sorts of jobs, like cleaning toilets, um, waitressing, making coffee. What else did I do? Uh, retail shop, like working at a socks shop. Like, uh, just I've done a lot of like hospital retail job, minimum wage job on like casual contract. Zero hour casual contract was a thing um, back then. It's made illegal at the moment, but it, <laughs> because I was longing to study for that during the four years, when I could study, I just <laughs> I just went for it, and I just studied till my student loan um, ran out. <laughs> yeah, how did you choose like your degrees? What were you interested in? How did you choose what to study? My mom and dad, um, they both um, 
I think they may have only completed um, primary school <laughs> because they are from a really poor family and they were born in the 50s and 60s, which was just after the devastating Korean War. <laughs> after the three years of Korean War in the early 50s, um, you know, country was just um, nothing left, basically. <laughs> three years of constant war, you know, Russia and America came into our soil and just destroyed everything. So they were born just after that. So I, I had absolutely no guidance around um, my education. Um, although they did everything to provide um, every opportunity possible for me to be educated, I just I just studied whatever interested me. <laughs> so my undergraduate degree was musicology if you like it's like theories of music but not performing and media film tv studies it just interested me so i did but after that <laughs> i thought i will never in my life will work for media industry <laughs> why, why is that after i finished my media studies degree i kind of stopped watching movies and tv series for a, a couple of years <laughs> because it's, it's just, I mean, it's just my personal um, position that I um, became to hold. But um, it's all about like making money. <laughs> um, and a lot of the contents, there, not not all media contents, but a lot of them are like really um, extreme. It's sensual. That will catch your attention about like um, sex, drug, profanities or what else. A lot of like extreme stuff, murder. <laughs> it's and it's all about making money that influence us in bad ways as a as an outcome for them to make money. I mean, my position isn't necessarily right, but it's just my position. I just became quite sad about that section of the industry. So therefore, I thought, oh, art history um, seems fun. <laughs> so I, I picked up art history degree. But while I was doing that, I got really interested in um post-colonial theories and how you can read um, um, art, mostly contemporary art, through the lens of post-colonial like, theories. So I, I looked at just a um, few really major streams of post-colonial studies, like um, Orientalism by Edward Said and um, Subaltern Theories by um, wonderful Indian Wahine um, Spivak. Yeah, and was it, did you say postgraduate? Was it, uh, did you have to write a thesis or what was that, what did that look like? Um, my thesis was on, um, oh God, it, it's quite a long time ago now, but um, how European Caucasian people, if you like, white people, if you like, <laughs> perceive like Asian contemporary art. And my subject of investigation there was um, South Korean contemporary art movement of the 1970s under a brutal um, dictatorship at the time. It's the Korean minimalism movement called Tansekwa. And there are a lot of art criticisms or writings or you know, things like that on Tansekwa by mostly American art critics or scholars or commentators. They look at the minimalist uh, art, usually just nothing on the, <laughs> there's no, like, um, how do you say, object, that, but it's all about colors and shapes and geometrics and all that. And they'll love it and say, oh, this is amazing zen art or zen buddhism i can feel the zen buddhism or whatnot but when you actually look into it it's nothing to do with the zen buddhism it's kind of a misconception or orientalizing the orient father if you like by painting this um, tansekwa minimalist movement 
with Zen Buddhism. And because that's few of the things that I think um, became really popular about East Asia, something about Zen is so popular. There's, there is a Zen sushi shop, Zen dog book, Zen wedding um, shop or Zen cafe. So it, it, you know, people love it, you know, and when they looked at this minimalist art, they said, oh, beautiful Zen. But when you really look into it, it's nothing to do with Zen. So I just explore. I found that really interesting. The Korean artists who are the Tansekwa artists, there, there are a few interviews and writing. They, they wrote a lot of things that's all dismissed. <laughs> they said that it's nothing to do with Zen Buddhism. But the Western scholars' um, voice kind of override everything that, you know, when, when you look at Western minimalist art, I think that most important thing in reading Western minimalism art is what artists had to say. But when it comes to Korean minimalist art, it's no longer important. Art, Korean artist voice was not important anymore. <laughs> and they just misunderstood the entire thing. That that That's just my opinion anyhow. That's how I saw the entire thing. So I wrote about that, but it, it's not very important, you know. <laughs> it, it, it's not going to get your job. <laughs> I mean, I think it's fascinating. I'm learning so much from you, son. Thank you so much for sharing those things. So how was, like, so you did this, you wrote about this, and is it something that you wanted to do more of? When I did a bit of art history studies, I became so pessimistic about the entire art, <laughs> art industry again. <laughs> Like, for example, there's a dot on a paper and you'll sell that for like $2 million. <laughs> How do you make sense of that? You know, <laughs> I was always struggling to put food on my table, doing like three jobs, three casual jobs at the same time, minimum, minimum wage jobs. So it just didn't make any sense to me after looking into it. In terms of your current, like, so you finished this thesis a few years ago, you said, what have you been doing since then? What, was, what, what does your life look like now? I was working at the university for about five years doing uh, many different roles. Apparently, that's also an ADHD thing that you um, change your jobs really often. So I, I thought it was because I was in poverty because I've done about 40 to 50 different jobs for the past 20 years. <laughs> I recently learned that um, it is a trait of ADHD. <laughs> While I was at the university, um, studying and working, I had a wonderful friend um, called Nicole Wallace. And she and also my colleague, Josine, they were both um, unionists. And they kind of nudged me, oh, you should join the union. And at, at first I thought, oh, no, I can't afford it because it's about $500 a year. <laughs> like weekly payment becomes that much. And as soon as I had a pay rise and got a permanent contract, um, I had a 500 um pay boost, <laughs> salary, <laughs> which was nothing. But I joined the union. From then on, um, I just, who would have thought I would love being a union delegate? They made me a union delegate as soon as I joined the union. And I just absolutely loved all that union does and um, do. It, it's a direct opposite, a big con contrast against the media and art history like industry. I just loved this so much. And I was a delegate for three years. So I thought, oh, why don't I go uh, you know, work for the union. And I did about, I think, 16 interviews over two years <laughs> during the pandemic to get into the uh, trade union movement. And 
I am now working for First Union. I went, went in there as an administrator first and did a secondment to do the union organizing work. And I was recently offered a permanent full-time organizer's job, like after many years of attempting to get in. So yeah, I'm in my happy spot at the moment. Wow, that's incredible, son. That's such a, what a, what a journey. And I would love to know a little bit more about like, what do you do for union? Like what kind of work, what does it involve? What are the topics or themes or? So when you sign the employment contract, there are two types of two types, individual employment agreement and the collective employment agreement. So if you're a union member, you're on a collective agreement. It's negotiated negotiated by um, union members as a group together. On your, it's about like 30 to 50, 60 pages of documents, including all your working rights and conditions, including the pay rise. So union members, if you become a union member, the best thing is that you will be covered by collective agreement. And also you will have the union representative um, supporting you if you ever need to go through restructure, redundancy, uh, disciplinary or performance management, then union will be there to help you. Do you reckon, you know, the work that you studied um, around like, you know, anti-racism or post-colonial stuff, do you reckon there is anything that you're using from that in your union work? I would like to think so. I mean, you didn't have to do this degree to do this job at all. Yeah, there, there was a um, uh, bullying case, which I clearly saw that it, it was a racist. <laughs> so I'm more like into helping these people because I know exactly what they are going through. <laughs> they don't need to explain, you know, anymore. I just get it. So I'll be there to, I mean... It doesn't mean that other people wouldn't get it, but I feel it, I think, I feel more pain because it's my lived experience. And also there was a um, Chinese lady at one of the sites that I cover, which I shouldn't disclose any information on, but she said that um, her issues were keep being dismissed. She felt that her issues were being dismissed, but as soon as a Asian woman came on board to look after her site, she felt that she was finally being supported so i think our workforce should whichever industry it is like law firm doctors nurses a union or banks or university or whatever industry it is i think we should reflect um more or less of our demographic otherwise there will be people who miss who will miss out on service that they should be receiving but they are not you know (laughs) you know something that we want to kind of wanted to talk about on this podcast is about what do we imagine better New Zealand to be when it comes to anti-racism, migration, belonging, ethnic communities? That's such a big question, which I hope that my daughter, if I will ever have a daughter, or just, you know, um, hypothetically, my next generation or my daughter's generation, I really hope they will, it'll be better for them. But I don't know what the answers, possible answers might be, but I think just getting to know different people and culture, I think that really helps instead of like isolating yourself into the comfortable zone of hanging out with who you know. Auckland is such a multicultural city, one of the most multicultural city in the world, doesn't think. More than enjoying their food, maybe get to know them. I think it's the stereotypes and biases that you have against um, certain groups of people. You just got to 
get to know them. <laughs> My friends, like um, European Pakeha friends, if you like, or Maori or Pacifica friends, we all have like, what's the word? Um, Interestness, like racism against each other. <laughs> Korean people will be mean to, towards um, Maori Pacifica community and but it could happen vice versa. But once we get to know each other, just mingle a little bit to more than watching K-drama and Korean food, just get to know us a little bit better, then you you may learn that we're just another human being, if you like. <laughs> um, we may have accent, but you may enjoy our company too if you get to know us. <laughs> I, Sandra, would love to ask you a little bit about your identity in terms of like how do you, like, you know, there is faith you mentioned, you are Christian, um, obviously Korean migrant, you know. Is there anything else forms a big part of how you think about yourself? Um, so I recently discovered that I may have um, ADHD and autism. <laughs> so I did look into it a little bit. So um, I became friends with um, this wonderful woman, um, Rafika, recently. And I went out on dinner with her. And she said, she told me that I have all the traits of autism. <laughs> and um, ADHD, I got to know about this because my boyfriend's sister had ADHD, was diagnosed with ADHD. Then he was thinking he may have ADHD because he's been suffering from a severe depression for four years. But ADHD really explained that now he's on a medication for ADHD and treatment for ADHD and he's improved, like he's a different person. So then that, that made me think that maybe I have ADHD. So when I looked into it, I think I, I may have, I kind of self-diagnosed and I'm going to see a um, psychiatrist on Monday. I waited for that appointment for five months. <laughs> I'm kind of spending the money that I don't have to get this diagnosed. It's exciting. I told my mom, hey, mom, I think I may have ADHD and autism. Because in Korea, the um, awareness around mental health is um, still quite behind. So you've got to just man up and just be happy about it. And, you know, <laughs> you've got to be strong. It's, it only uh, manifests in weak people. That kind of stereotypes, I think, still exist in Korea. So I was really careful talking to my mom about this. And her first response was she, she got so sad. Getting to know about those um, conditions that I may have, it, it was a really, I don't know what other words to use. It's a really liberating feeling. <laughs> All the weird traits that I had, all the problems that I had or, or have, trace back to ADHD and autism conditions. And I all of, it, it's weird, but I all of a sudden feel very normal and accepted, although nobody else accepted me. I accept my all, all, all of these old behaviors. <laughs> I feel more normal. It's just a neurodiverse condition, but nothing else. I'm just made this way. So far, I'm actually in parallel currently doing a series um, about autism awareness. Everyone who we've interviewed talked about that liberation of once you have diagnosis, feeling just more yourself. I feel the same. Hopefully, <laughs> you know, your, your um, Monday appointment happens five months. Wait time is a long time, for example. And a few others that I know are very, very vocal about it and advocates for it, which is really awesome to see that because yeah, you, it needs to change uh, in terms of how we approach it. Um, and especially hearing people having this feeling of liberation, that's beautiful. And how do we enable that to happen sooner? 
there, I don't think there is a good awareness around it just yet. It's happening. I think Chloe Schwarberg recently came out, if you like, as um, she, she said that she has ADHD and um, it's improving and it's getting better. There are more and more awareness. But I, when I say I may have ADHD autism, I do sense it, sense that um, people think that, oh, I'm sorry, or, oh, isn't it that you... You can just, you know, get better, you know, if you really try. I, I do kind of get those types of response here in New Zealand as well, regardless of um, like what culture they come from. So there are misunderstanding, misconception and like stigma around it here in New Zealand too. But I think Korea probably is a bit more behind. The most important thing is that I do have wonderful friends um, who just accept me as who I am. I think that's really important. And I feel like I can accept myself better for myself. That's a huge improvement for myself. We asked like four quickfire kind of questions. So the first one is, what is your favorite Korean dish? Instant noodles. <laughs> the ramen. <laughs> oh, I recently got to know that um, the brand called Otugi, they don't, they, everybody that they hire is um, permanent staff. They don't, um, higher casual stuff so i tried their noodle for the first time and it was a new world i really like it jin ramen if you could be the character the main character in a movie or a tv show what would it be about oh i see when i was a little i always wanted to be a pianist maybe i could play a pianist <laughs> in a movie <laughs> love that love that if you could introduce one policy change to like new zealand government or organizations in general what would it be about? Housing reform kind of policy because it's become a crisis and they have a different word now, catastro- catastrophe. <laughs> Maybe something to do around the housing. Um, just build millions and um, uh, give it to poor. <laughs> I, don't know. I mean, I'm all for it. Last question. What makes you feel like a badass? One of the traits of ADHD and autism is that you get fixated on things that you love. Recently, the thing for me is dancing. And I think maybe, yeah, some sometimes, some weeks I look, I think, oh, yeah, that looks good. Not all the time. but <laughs> Amazing. San, thank you so much for sharing everything you've shared. I've yeah, yeah. I hope you enjoyed your time here with that with me as well, and because I I've enjoyed this a lot. Thank you so much, Alina, <laughs> for organizing this and listening to my stories. I suppose. And that was Sun. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you haven't already, check out the 14 other incredible conversations in this series. Share, subscribe, send to someone who might benefit from either feeling seen learning more about ethnic experiences in Aotearoa. These conversations are a collaboration of Belong Aotearoa, Planet FM, Storio and Sport Waitakere. So you can find the links to those excellent organizations in the bio. Thank you to our funder, Auckland Council Regional Development Fund and to New Zealand On Air. Mm-hmm.